so we're starting this class on the topic of tenets and it's not an easy topic it's challenging but very worthwhile very beneficial so the reason we study tenets is mainly because we want to be free of suffering we want to be happy we want to reach liberation and enlightenment and what prevents us from being happy and liberated and enlightened is ignorance about our own self, I, who we are, what we are, how we exist. So we, we just don't know ourselves as we really are. We're ignorant of our real nature. And we're also ignorant of the nature of other people and things and the world around us and everything. We see everything in mistaken ways. And these mistakes didn't come from our parents or our education system or our government. We were born with them. We came into this life with a mind that wasn't like a blank slate, pure and clear, but full of mistaken ideas, attitudes, conceptions, as well as seeds of afflictive emotions, attachment, anger, and so on. So these have been in our mind from beginningless time, carried life after life after life, keeping us in samsara, causing us to experience lots of suffering and problems. So how to get out of this situation? As Geshe Yeshitake has said a number of times, it's not enough just to stop thinking and stop looking at things and just go into a sort of blank-minded state which might feel very good, might be, be very kind of calm and peaceful. But that's not the way to become free of ignorance and the other uh, mistaken attitudes we have, mistaken conceptions, afflictive emotions. They're not going to go away just by not looking at them. We have to engage in study, analysis, investigation to be able to recognize how we are wrong, how our way of seeing things is mistaken. So that's the real purpose of learning tenets. So the Buddha taught all of these different views and the different tenet schools. And he taught in different ways suited to different people. To some he taught the, the view of emptiness, emptiness of inherent existence. That's considered the highest, most correct, accurate view of things. We've heard that many times. But do we really understand what that means? Do we really understand the meaning of inherent existence and how things are empty of that? It's actually very difficult. It's very subtle. 
And so to understand that, it's very helpful to un understand the views of the other tenet schools, which are not as profound, not as deep, not as subtle. So they can be compared to steps of a staircase or rungs of a ladder that lead us gradually to the highest, uh, most profound and most accurate view of things. So generate the wish to engage in this study, to free yourself from ignorance and other mistaken ideas and attitudes and emotions, but ultimately to reach full enlightenment, Buddhahood, and be able to help all other sentient beings to likewise become free, liberated, and eventually enlightened. Okay, so um, there are a number of different texts or books on this topic of tenets. Some of them are huge, like uh, Jeffrey Trans... I, I haven't actually read it, but it's called Maps of the Profound. It's like this big. <laughs> we have it in our library. I think it's Jamyang Shepa's. Uh, text on tenets, and um, there's another one in there by Changya Robe Dorje, which is also pretty hefty. <laughs> um, and then there's this book, we have a few copies of these, Cutting Through Appearances. Um, not the whole book is about tenets, the first part is about the three principal aspects of the path, so maybe just two-thirds of it is about tenets. Um, so this is really excellent as well. Kuncho Jigme Wangpo's text on tenets with Geshe Sofa's uh, explanation, commentary, translated by Jeffrey. But um, I thought to use the text that I studied myself, um, and it was actually 40 two years ago, <laughs> not 30. <laughs> I realized 19, about 1980, I had the chance to study this with Geshe Jamba Tekchok, wonderful teacher. And um, yeah, so the author of this text is Jetson Chuki Gelsen. And so he was born about 50 years after Lama Tsongkhapa passed away. So, not, you know, pretty close to Lama Tsongkhapa, and um, I wasn't able to find a lot of information about him, but he studied and taught at Tashilunpal Monastery, which is the monastery of the Panchen Lamas, and also at Sarah Monastery, and he was, at a later part of his life, he was an abbot of Sarah Monastery, the 12th abbot. And he wrote many texts, um, I say seven, there's seven volumes of his texts um, on, mainly on uh, Madhyamaka, Prashnaparamita, Tenets. And in Sarah Monastery, Sarah J, I should say, Sarah J Monastery, 
the Sarah J and Sarah May. The Sarah J Monastery, the, the students who study there, they mainly use his texts as their textbooks. So he's the textbook writer uh, for Sarah J. So in the FPMT centers, most of the Geshe's are, have studied at Sarah J. So, you know, they teach um, Jetson Shoki Gelson's uh, text. And um, when I studied it with Geshe Jamatekshu, it wasn't translated. In fact, I di we didn't know of any translations of, of any philosophical texts at, the, at that time. We had a copy of Jeffrey Hopkins' PhD dissertation, which later became the book Meditation on Emptiness, but it was still in the form of a PhD thesis, which is like double-spaced, page after page. I don't think there's any index or any, you know, it's like you're trying to find something in there, it's very difficult. And so we were just like, I mean, we were so grateful that Geshe-la gave us the teachings, and then our translator translated it, but, and then we were just writing notes down, but we didn't have a copy of the text. And then a year or two after studying it, um, there was another group of students that wanted to study this topic, and Geshe-la Geshe didn't have time to teach it, so he asked me to teach it. <laughs> and I'm sure I was very reluctant. I can't do that. But he said, okay, I'll, I'll help you. And he did. You know, he, I would go to him almost every day with questions. Because it's one thing to listen to teachings, but when you have to explain it to others, it's like, oh, how do I, what does this mean? So he was very, very helpful. And while, while teaching that class, I translated the text, but not, not all by myself, of course. I was very much relying on Geshe Teksho's explanations and also our translator, who is a monk, uh, Venerable Sumten Chupel. Um, so he helped very much to translate, but that's how I came up with the translation of the text. And I haven't looked at it since then, <laughs> hardly. Uh, it has been used a few times by some STEM students, and they and they did some corrections to it. But I thought it might be helpful to look at it again. Mm -hmm. um, so I've sent that to you, and I thought we'll go through that text. And um, there's also a commentary by Geshe Jama given at Nalanda Monastery, which. You can read that on your own. I will sometimes refer to it, but it's more for you to read on your own if you have time. And there's actually a lot of other materials as well. And I was thinking maybe somebody could make a Google Doc. What do you call those things? Like a, a place <laughs> where we can put all these different materials and then people can download them if they want. Because there's... Um, um, I don't know, it's like a little booklet that Geshima Kelsang Wangmo put together. She, she sort of wrote it on her own, but of course she's got an amazing knowledge, and it's really wonderful and really clear. So I could make that available to you. She taught this course at Tushita, I don't know when, some years ago, and, and I guess this was a book they used during the course. And... Um, there's two other translations of this text. One is by Glenn Svensson, who was uh, a student in the first master's program at Lama Tsongkhapa Institute. Another is by Ian Coglin or Jamba Yignyan. He was a monk at Sarah for a long time. So they maybe the scholars who want to kind of compare how mm -hmm. other translators have translated the text. 
um, I can make those available as well. And there's various charts as well. <laughs> I didn't want to overload you with too much material. <laughs> but I thought this chart is very helpful. And, and so I asked Venerable Wamsel to make copies of it. So it's like a map, um, just for you to keep, especially those who haven't studied this before. So across the top, you have the four main schools, Vibhashika, Sotrantika, Chittamatra, and Madhyamaka. And then each, or not all of them, but some of them have sub-schools. Uh, we won't go through this now, but it's just for you to have to look at and figure out where we're at. <laughs> um, and it's also nice because it mentions some of the um, proponents of each school, so you know, you know, who's who, who's who in the in the Satrantikas uh, and Chittamatras and so on, and their dates. So that's kind of nice information. So what I'm planning to do today is just to kind of give a general introduction of the topic uh, of tenets, and we might get into Vibhashika, the first school, but yeah, so that's kind of a little bit of background. And... Um, Yeah, so why, why we study this, as I mentioned during the motivation, it's to overcome ignorance. <laughs> so Geshe Jamba Tekchuk in his commentary says, The purpose of studying tenets is to gain the light of wisdom that discriminates between correct and incorrect beliefs. So we actually have a lot of beliefs that we may not even be aware of. They might be kind of unconscious and they're incorrect, so we need to be able to recognize those. And all of the different uh, tenet schools were taught by the Buddha. Some Western scholars, I think, question that. They think that the Tibetans just invented these different schools. <laughs> but Geshema says that, um, yeah, there's one tantric text where the Buddha names all the four schools, gives the you know refers to them by name, and in a commentary to the Vajra Tantra by Vajragarbha, it says it is not the subduer's thought that a fourth vehicle or a fifth school of tenets exists for Buddhists. So anyway, there are some references, at least in the tantric text, that the Buddha did intend that there are four schools of tenets. And um, you've probably heard this as well, that Buddha, it was like a doctor. Um, so a good doctor doesn't give the same kind of medicine to everybody. That would be very unskillful. <laughs> and so uh, the Buddha would teach according to the minds of his listeners. So there were some listeners who were ready for Madhyamaka Prasangika view, and he taught that. Others, for them, that would have been too much. They may have fallen into nihilism, you know, and maybe gone crazy or something. So, so the Buddha would teach Chittamatra view or Vabhashika view. Okay, so that's the reason for the existence of these different views. They're for different types of, of people with different kinds of minds. Um, 
And so it's important that we have respect for all of these different traditions, you know. And in fact, some of the proponents of the schools that are lower than Prasangika were brilliant, you know, brilliant, amazingly, you know, amazing minds. And so we shouldn't sort of disparage them and think, I'm a Prasangika, and he's just a Babashika or a Chittamatra. <laughs> that would be very un- unskillful. Um, yeah. And it's it's also helpful, you know, living here at the Abbey because Venerable Children is teaching the te- the books from the Library of Compassion and Wisdom, and you know that's kind of presenting different points of view, and then different schools are are mentioned there. So it it is helpful uh, to to have some familiarity with all of these different schools and their different points of view and also for Jeffrey's class. So there's various benefits. I have a slide a little bit later for um, some more benefits that, me- that were mentioned by Geshima. Um, so the, the, the first slide on here is the, is the three wheels of Dharma. You've probably heard this before, but in case some of you haven't, um, it said that the Buddha turned the wheel of Dharma three times. And um, the first wheel, his very first teaching after his enlightenment, uh, he taught at Varanasi. And um, those teachings were intended for uh, what's sometimes called Hinayana. Venerable uses the term fundamental vehicle, which is quite nice. So those were the intended trainees for those teachings. And uh, the main subject of those teachings was the Four Truths, um, and of course many other things as well, but mainly the Four Truths. And um, in those teachings, the Buddha taught that all phenomena exist by way of their own character. I I, kind of wonder, did he really actually say that? (laughs) Or is it just implied that you know the way he taught. That's 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 the conclusion you come to. <laughs> but anyway, that's what the Tibetans say. <laughs> um, and then the second wheel. Uh, well, when it says it was taught at Vulture Peak, that's the beginning of it. But you know, it could have been given other places as well. So Vulture Peak in uh, Rajgir, not too far from Bodhgaya. And that's where he taught the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, of which there are a number of different ones, like the Heart Sutra is a short one, but there's very long ones as well. And those teachings were meant for universal vehicle trainees, Mahayana trainees. And there the Buddha taught that all phenomena do not exist by way of their own character. That's, according to uh, Prasangika, Existing by way of their own character or not existing by way of their own character is another way of talking about inherent existence. Okay, so saying that, you know, this thermos exists by way of its own character means it's inherently existing and all those synonyms. So in the second wheel teachings, the Buddha said all phenomena do not exist by way of their own character. They do not exist inherently, injectively, and so on. And then, um, 
when Jay Garfield was teaching a couple of years ago, um, we, we did some classes on the Sutra Unraveling the Thought. And um, that's, a, um, anyway, another a sutra in which um, this bodhisattva named Paramartha Samagata asked the Buddha, what's going on here? You know, the first, the first uh, teaching you gave, you said all phenomena do exist by way of their own character. And then the second wheel, you said that phenomena do not exist by way of their own character. Sounds contradictory. And so then the Buddha repl replied by differentiating. Some phenomena do exist by way of their own character, and some phenomena do not. So he differentiated. So that was the start of the third wheel. That 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 was how the third wheel arose, um, and it said that was taught at Vaishali, Vaishali, also in that same area, northern India. And this is said to be intended for trainees of both vehicles. So both universal and fundamental vehicle trainees are intended trainees for the third wheel. And um, so there the Buddha, yeah, he said which phenomena do exist and which do not exist by way of their own character. So that's something we'll get into later, mainly when we get to the um, Chittamatra school. Um, so they, the Chittamatra or mind-only school, regard the third wheel as the main one, the main, the main um, wheel that they follow. And um, Madhyamaka, Madhyamaka, uh, schools regard the second wheel as the main one, the most important one. So this is kind of a way of summarizing the main messages, teachings given by the Buddha. Um, okay, the next, um, yeah, this this was from Geshe Ma Wangmo's um, booklet, uh, just some reasons for studying tenets that might inspire us. Um, so there's this saying, you've probably heard this before, it's from the Kadampa Geshis, um, or followers of Atisha, really real yogis, meditators. Um, so the, they have this saying, meditating without studying is like trying to climb a mountain without hands. A great image. <laughs> So we want to, we want to, you know, realize the true nature of things and get out of samsara and get to enlightenment. But if we don't study, if we just sit down and meditate, you know, how do we know what we're doing? So it's very important that we that we study as a basis for our meditation. And then the second point says it enables us to identify innate innate misapprehensions that we have and analyze these. So again, we have within us, we're born with these mistaken states of mind about our, our own I and others and everything else. And um, so we have to be able to recognize these and, and then investigate them. Are these correct or not? And that's the only way to be free of them. They won't just go away by themselves. We can't pray to Buddha to take them away from us. Um, but we have to 
analyze them. And then the third point, uh, study of the lower tenet schools enables us to understand the higher ones. So that it's like a staircase, like, you know, if you want to, it's like a, a four-story building, and there's no elevator or escalator. There's only stairs. <laughs> so you can't get to the fourth story without going through the other stories. You have to, you know, go gradually. So in a similar way, we can't really understand Madhyamaka Prasangika, the highest school, without understanding the others. And then, last point, it provides us with an inner force to distinguish correct and incorrect perspectives so we can penetrate reality. So, of course, it's good to cultivate love and compassion and patience and do mind training practices and develop calm abiding. Those are part of the path as well. We have to do those. But just those alone will not enable us even to get out of samsara. We can get good rebirths in samsara, but if we want to get out of samsara, we have to gain the realization of emptiness, the true nature of things wisdom, realizing emptiness. So that's the real mean, the real reason, the real purpose for doing this, this kind of study. Okay, so the, the term in Tibetan we translate as tenets is drupta, and drup means established, ta means uh, conclusion. It also has other meanings like end or limit, but here conclusion is a good term. So Geshe Jamatekshuk said, after studying a philosophical system, so you first have to study a system. You have to learn uh, its beliefs, its, its explanations. You have to study, and you also have to think about it, and also good to debate, discuss with others to make sure you have a good understanding. When one establishes the final meaning of a set of scriptures or teachings in one's mind and then explains these to others, one becomes a proponent of tenets. So we're going to come to a definition of that a little bit later. What is, what is a proponent of tenets? Um, So Geshima says that tenets are not mere beliefs. So, you know, it's easy to say, oh yeah, everything is merely labeled by the mind. Nothing is inherently existing. So we heard that many times from His Holiness and Venerable Children and other teachers, and we read it in books, and it's easy to say, you know, to just say those words. But does that mean we really understand what we're saying? that we have really established the meaning of that in our life. Um, So she says, a proponent of Buddhist tenet should be someone who studied and analyzed the different concepts of the Buddha Dharma and who comprehends the implications of accepting one view and refuting another. So you really have to go quite deep into studying these uh, different views. And in fact, okay, another book um, I really love, it's called Appearance and Reality, 
Guy Newland, and he he's only talking about the two truths in each of the four schools. But it's great, partly partly because he's a Westerner. He's one of us, and so he's ex, you know explaining things in a American way, and also the kind of doubts and questions that he has are, are things that we can really relate to. So in this book, he says, um, it, it is said that to be a proponent of a particular tenet system, one must realize the selflessness explained by that system. So that's a pretty high bar. <laughs> and I haven't come across that anywhere else. Geshe-la didn't, Geshe-ma didn't say it, Geshe-teksha didn't say it, but maybe some say that, you know, but to actually say, I am a proponent of Madhyamaka tenets, you have to actually have a realization of emptiness. Um, but that shouldn't discourage us, because of course the more we study and discuss and meditate on these topics, then the more we will gain an understanding of them. Um, so now we can um, start looking at the text. Oh, here it is. Okay. Yeah, so this, the text starts off with homage to um, homage basically to the gurus. Um, it's homage to all who are holy and venerable, existing inseparable in entity with Lama Protector Manjushri. Then, um, and then it gives a definition of a Buddhist uh, propounder of tenets. Oh, it says there's, yeah, there's three points. Definition, divisions, and then the meaning of each division. Um, so the definition... <coughs> <coughs> So this is a definition of a proponent of Buddhist tenets, um, because there are, there are, or were, and still are, schools of non-Buddhist tenets. Um, we encountered some of those when we were um, studying Pramanavartika with, with Geshe Yeshitapke. For example, the Charvakas, the hedonists, or materialists. There was another school called the Mimamsakas and, and so on. So actually, it's I think in Maps of the Profound, it probably does go into these other schools of tenets, which is helpful. I haven't done much of that, but just to see what kind of views people had prior to the Buddha, you know, what were people thinking about and teaching and practicing, you know, at the time of the Buddha? Because, you know, I mean... Buddha's teachings did come out of that situation, and a lot of the things Buddha taught were kind of in response to what other people were saying, other other teachers were saying at that time. And so, yeah, if you have a lot of time, it's good to do that. Um, but, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're just going to look at the Buddhist schools. Um, so... Uh, so somebody who is a proponent of Buddhist tenets then is um, is a proponent. Is it? Did I put it on the? I think it's on the next slide. Yeah, proponent of Buddhist tenets is a proponent of tenets who accepts the three jewels as 
ultimate. And when I looked at that, I thought, what? Why did I put ultimate? Because the word, Tibetan word, yangtag, usually is translated as perfect or correct or authentic. So I think it may have been uh, Geshe-la or the translator who suggested ultimate. I don't think I would have come up with that on my own. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, you can choose. You can take your pick, whichever term you like. Perfect is nice. Perfect objects of refuge, okay? And does not assert any other objects of refuge than those. Um, so this is to distinguish a Buddhist proponent of tenets from a proponent of tenets of some other school, like Travaka or Samkhya or, or whatever. So the main distinction is that taking refuge in the Three Jewels, holding the Three Jewels, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha as ultimate or perfect ideal um, objects of refuge. But they also have to be someone who pro propounds tenets, who is a proponent of tenets. Now, it's also said that the second bullet point, a, bu a Buddhist is someone who takes refuge in the Three Jewels from the depths of their heart. Um, so, um, so there's a difference between a Buddhist, a proponent of Buddhist tenets, and a Buddhist. Yeah. How many possibilities are there <laughs> between a proponent of Buddhist tenets and a Buddhist, a mere mere Buddhist? Three. Three. Pause it. Give examples. Someone who is a Buddhist and who is a proponent of Buddhist tenets? Someone For example, oh. Dalai Lama? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What about a proponent of Buddhist tenets who is not a Buddhist? Okay. No the way. Go Impossible. No such thing. <laughs> uh, a Buddhist who's not a proponent of Buddhist tenets? Maybe a, a literate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, somebody who just takes refuge but hasn't actually studied. There's millions. <laughs> in, in Asia especially, but also in other... Yeah, people who have great faith in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, but they haven't really studied tenets, so yeah, you asked them to explain selflessness or any of these things, they wouldn't be able to, but they still have great faith. And then, of course, somebody who's neither, like maybe Pope Francis. Lots of people. So this is helpful because, um, for one thing, there's a book called What Makes You Not a Buddhist? Has anyone read that? Yeah, I didn't read it. I was just kind of glancing through it. But one thing I read that just shocked me, he said, this is some sarcastic. If I remember correctly, I haven't had time to go back and look at it, but he says, um, if you believe in inherent existence, you're not a Buddhist. What do you well, think about that? Huh? Well, that leaves out yeah, a huge number, number of people. people. 
Everybody except Majimika uh, Prasangikas. <laughs> oh, ouch. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's quite important to to understand what it what it takes to be a Buddhist. What is the real meaning of being a Buddhist, at least according to our school, you know, that the bottom line is taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. You don't have to have studied tenets. You don't even have to know how to read, you know. Um, as long as you really have faith in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha from your heart, that is enough to make you a Buddhist. And then, on top of that, if you have studied any of the tenet systems, not just Madhyamaka Prasangika, but any of the tenet systems, and, and you um, at least hold those views, you, you believe in them, you follow them, you practice them, then you're... Uh, you're still a Buddhist, and you might even be a proponent of Buddhist tenets. So that's a much more inclusive explanation than, than what was presented in that book. Um, the next slide, um, yeah, this isn't mentioned in, in the Jetson Chuki Gelson's commentary, but it's also said that um, a proponent of Buddhist tenets needs to accept the four seals. So that's another criteria. Um, and you've probably heard these before, but in case you haven't. Um, so this is actually the way of distinguishing proponents of Buddhist tenets from those of non-Buddhist tenets. That the Buddhists accept these four seals. Um, that all compounded phenomena are impermanent. What's, what is the meaning of compounded phenomena? Product, um, causes and conditions bring it into existence. Yeah, things that come into existence from causes and conditions. So all those kind of things are impermanent, change moment by moment. And then number two, all contaminated phenomena are dukkha. Venable uses the term polluted, but I think most other books and teachers use contaminated phenomena. So contaminated phenomena, this is a little tricky. <laughs> there are different explanations of contaminated phenomena. Um, in the Prasangika school, and probably Madhyamaka in general, contaminated phenomena are things that um, are affected by ignorance. They come into existence uh, in dependence on ignorance and other afflictions, or at least ignorance. So they're all contaminated by ignorance. Um, in the Vaibhashika school, which we're, we'll come to later, they say that a contaminated phenomena is something that is amenable to increase contaminations in the sense of afflictive emotions. So, for example, this thermos <laughs> is contaminated because when we look at it or touch it or relate to it in any way, we could get afflicted. Our, in, our afflictions could increase. We could get attached to it. So it could cause attachment to increase. Not that it's you know doing that from its own side, but... <laughs> Um, you know, in relation to that object, we can have more attachment, or we could get angry at it and want to destroy it. So things that can increase our afflictions are contaminated. 
So there could be different ways of explaining contaminated. But anyway, all contaminated phenomena are dukkha, are unsatisfactory, miserable suffering. Number three, this is also tricky, all phenomena are selfless. And each of the four schools has different, well, no, no, not completely. There are different explanations of selflessness. What is the meaning of selfless? So we'll get into that later. But a, the, the only common meaning that will cover all the four schools is this one. <laughs> they lack a permanent, unitary, independent mm-hmm. self. That's the kind of self that the non, many of the non-Buddhist schools believe in. A soul, an Atman that's permanent, unchanging, unitary, doesn't have parts, independent of causing conditions. So they taught that kind of a self or a soul. But all the Buddhists are unanimous that there's no such thing as a permanent, unitary, independent self. So that's that's the meaning of selflessness that covers all the Buddhist schools. And that's kind of a very coarse meaning of selflessness, um, the coarsest one. <laughs> Another one that's still kind of coarse is the lack of a self-sufficient, substantially existent self. We'll get more into that later. However, they, they, they say there's, uh, in the Vabashika, the the Vabashika actually includes 18 different sub-schools. We're, do- we're not going to go into all of those, don't worry. <laughs> um, but there's one of those sub-schools that, I think Geshe-la mentioned this recently, um, they say that there is a kind of self that is neither permanent nor impermanent, neither, I forget what's the other thing they say, um, yeah, it's called the Vatsiputriyas, that school. Um, so they do see it's kind of, kind of, it's not this, it's not a permanent, unitary, independent self, but it's it's still some kind of self. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so they're, they're kind of out there. And they're still a Buddhist. They're still considered Buddhist schools, a Buddhist school, but, you know, they have that, that particular view. So that's why we have to say... To cover them, to include them, we have to say selflessness means this, lack of a permanent, unitary, independent self. They do agree with that, but they still assert another kind of self. But then, um, like in volume two of uh, the books Venerable's doing, when the four seals are explained, it says that um, according to Prasangika, this third Seal means emptiness of inherent existence. All phenomena are empty of inherent existence. But that's exclusive to Prasangika. So if we want to be inclusive, including all the Buddhist schools, then we have to explain it in that way. And the fourth seal is nirvana is peace. Meaning of nirvana. Uh, what was that guy's name? He was here the other day. Robson. Robson. <laughs> We're sitting at breakfast. He says, Venerable, what is nirvana? <laughs> anyway, so nirvana 
um, is the cessation of all dukkha, all suffering, and the causes of suffering. So it's not a place, it's not a physical place we go to, like a heaven. And it's also not even a state of mind. I think I did say that. It's like a, it's a state of mind, but I, it's not really a state of mind in the sense that it's not consciousness, it's not mental. But it's a situation in which a mind exists when that mind has become totally free of all, all the um, afflictive obscurations, the uh, ignorance and, and all the delusions and so on, and, and therefore all dukkha. So that's the meaning of nirvana. So nirvana is real peace. Because some of the other, the non-Buddhist schools, um, some of the proponents and, and practitioners of those schools developed a very good uh, concentration, samadhi, and they uh, attained the various levels of the, the four uh, jhanas, the four concentrations and the four formless absorptions, which, I mean, those states of mind must, must be just out of this world. <laughs> And they, some of them thought that's nirvana because it's so peaceful. When you're in those states of mind, you don't feel any pain, <laughs> any mental pain or physical pain. Your, your delusions aren't jumping all over the place. So peaceful, so blissful. And so they reached those states of mind and thought that's nirvana. You know? So the Buddha was unique in explaining a different kind of nirvana than what other uh, teachers of his time explained. He attained a state where it wasn't just peaceful, but the ignorance and the afflictions, attachment and so forth were totally uprooted and eliminated from the mind such that they will never occur again. So that's real nirvana, according to Buddhism. Real peace. Okay, so... Divisions of um, the Buddhist schools. Um, I'm putting words in red, and that are those are changes I made already to the translation. Um, yeah, so maybe I'll one of these days come up with a different translation. But um, yeah, so these are the four schools. And when I learned them, I learned the Sanskrit names, so I'm more familiar with those. Some people prefer the English names, so it's up to you how you want to learn them. So the first school is Vibhashika, which is usually translated as Great Exposition, or Particularist is the translation that I came up with, or we came up with back then. Sotrantika, Sutra Followers. Chidamatra, mind only. And then the text actually says at this point, non-entitylessness. It doesn't say madhyamaka, middle way. Um, it says non-entitylessness, but that refers to uh, madhyamaka. They are the ones who, who are proponents of non-entitylessness, which um, means absence of inherent existence, emptiness of inherent... No, no, sorry, we have to say emptiness of true existence. But that'll come later. That's the last school we, we study. And then, um, and it says the first two 
are also known as the two schools that propound, and then in brackets, truly existent external objects. I don't know what did I what did I put the first time. It's kind of like that. They propound the meaning because there's the word dun there. That's all it says, dun. But uh, again, we didn't have many dictionaries back then, and we didn't have other books we could refer to to see, you know, to find things out. But I, I did find in one of the current dictionaries that um, that these two schools, which is Vibhashika and Satrantika, they have this kind of nickname, <laughs> this term for them, um, that they are, they propound. Uh, which just says dun, which can mean object or meaning, but what it means is truly existent external objects. Um, because, as you probably know, the Chitta Matra, mind only school, and one type of Madhyamaka say there's no external objects. We've been talking about that in, in Geshe Tapke's class, you know, like the thermos. It seems like it's external. It seems like it's out there, and I just come along and see it or touch it. But that's not correct. The thermos that we see comes from our mind, an imprint in our mind left from some past experience, and that ripens and causes us to see the thermos and everything else, everything we see are just imprints, kind of like, uh, you know, it's like a mind is a movie projector, <laughs> just projecting all these things out there. They look like they're out there and they're real, but that's an illusion. And that's the big mistake. That's, that's what causes us to stay in samsara, thinking that things are real out there as they appear. But in fact, they're not. So that's the Chitta Matra view. And, and, and the other schools, like the first two schools, Vabhashika and Satrantika, don't agree with that. They, they say there are external objects. Things are out there. Okay? <laughs> and not only that, but they're truly existent. <laughs> they're real. They're truly existing, inherently existing. So that's something that distinguishes those two schools from all the others. Honorable, I have a question here. Mm -hmm. The non-entity-lessness, there's kind of a double negation there. And in the Tibetan, I only see the, the single negation. Should it be non-entity-ness or entity-lessness? Should it actually be a double negation? Uh, I didn't check carefully. It's ngomonimepar. Ngomonimepar mawa. So proponents of absence of entitylessness, non-entityless, non-entity. Oh, you're right, non-entityness. Mm. So it should be non-entityness. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out. I'll correct that before I send the slide. <laughs> yeah. So they propound that things are lacking entity, meaning lacking inherent existence. Yeah, when you study Buddhist philosophy, there's so many different terms, and many of them have the same meaning, but not always. It's, it, that's one of the big difficulties in doing this kind of study. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you were saying how Chitta Matrins would say 
there's are problems that we see objects as existing out there, ex like completely separate from the mind. Wouldn't also Majamakas agree that that's a problem? Yeah. It's just the source of that object is different. Yeah. Yeah, the Prasangikas also say that um, the things that we see are dependent on our mind, but they don't go as far as the Chittamatrans and say it's, there's no external objects. They, they, Except for one type of Madhyamaka, the Yogacara Svatantrika Madhyamaka, they agree with the Chittamatras. But um, the other Madhyamakas... Um, do assert external objects, but they are not totally out there, independent of the mind. They do depend on the mind, but how they depend on the mind is is a different way than the Chittamatras explain. Um, yeah, so another thing is the first two schools are said to be Hinayana, or fundamental vehicle schools. And the second two are Mahayana, or universal. And there's reasons for saying that. It's not what we normally think. Normally we think of the difference between Hinayana and Mahayana as Hinayanas are trying to achieve just nirvana for themselves, and Mahayana are trying to achieve enlightenment for all sinning beings. But when it comes to tenets, uh, the tenet schools, there are different criteria for saying one is Hinayana and one is Mahayana. And I'll come to that a little later. Um, I don't know if we'll have time for it today, but... And actually in Geshima's um, um, notes or booklet, she has seven different reasons or seven different points distinguishing the Hinayana and the Mahayana tenet systems. I'll just mention a few of them, but if you can read the others... But um, just regarding the order of how, how they're arranged... Oh, back. <laughs> um, yeah, Geshima says, this order is from the point of view of Madhyamaka. So the meaning of Madhyamaka is middle way. And the meaning of middle way is avoiding two extremes of uh, what's sometimes called eternalism. What does Venable use? Absolutism. Absolutism eternalism, permanence on one hand, and then nihilism on the other hand. So every school, in fact, considers that they are the middle way, that they are avoiding those two extremes. But how they avoid the two extremes is unique to each school. Uh, maybe one day we'll have a chart showing that. But, but from the point of view of Madhyamaka, looking at the other schools, they, they say all the, all the schools except us are in the extreme of permanence or absolutism. They're, they're all, you know, falling into that extreme. Um, because they have the, the most refined and most subtle um, object of negation, what is being negated in the view of selflessness. And so... So that it's from the point of view of their tenets that this arrangement is made. Um, the Vabashika are kind of the more gross, and then Satrandika a little more subtle, and Chidamadra a little more subtle, and then finally Madhyamaka. Um, 
But if if it was another school that was making the arrangement, the <laughs> Matrans, they'd probably put them in a different order and put themselves at the top. Or the Vabashikas would put themselves at the top. <laughs> so it all depends on which point of view uh, you're looking at all the four schools. And Geshema says that despite this hierarchical order, all four are considered to be of equal importance because um, studying and understanding them is said to be a vital tool for the cultivation of wisdom. So we should respect all of them. And she said, um, historical records show that proponents of all four schools lived together at Nalanda Monastery. And they studied together and they learned from each other. So I think that's very nice to have respect for all of them. Okay, so then, um, yeah, so in the text, each of the schools is explained by way of these seven points. There's a definition of a person who propounds those tenets and divisions of the different schools, etymology, why are they called that? How does, why do they have that name? How they assert objects, things that we perceive and experience. How they assert object possessors, which mainly refers to minds or consciousnesses that see objects. How they assert a self selflessness. And then grounds and paths. Grounds and paths, These, those two terms are actually synonymous, and they refer to mental states, realizations. So how does one actually progress in one's mental development until one reaches one's goal, whether it's nirvana or enlightenment? What are the different stages you go through, the different realizations you achieve in your progress towards your goal? So, okay, so we can start now looking at the first school, Vibhashika. So there's a definition of a Vibhashika. Um, yeah, I, I didn't put it on the slide, but you can look at the text. It says, the definition of a Vibhashika is one who propounds Hinayana tenets, and asserts external objects to be truly existent, but does not assert self-cognizer. So I thought at this point it would be helpful to explain Hinayana tenets versus Mahayana tenets. And so, like I said, uh, Geshema explains a number of different points, so I'll just mention a few of those. So Hinayana tenet systems um, the first point here is they assert only a selflessness of persons, but not selflessness of phenomena. So that's one of the uh, differences between Hinayana and Mahayana tenets. Um, Mahayana tenets, Chidamatra and Madhyamaka, they have a selflessness of persons and the selflessness of phenomena. So they, they don't just talk about personal selflessness, like me and you and all beings. They also talk about phenomena, all the other things, the inanimate things, and minds, and nirvana, and enlightenment. So they talk about selflessness with regard to all phenomena. But of the two Hinayana schools, they only talk about selflessness of persons. Then the second point 
they assert truly existent external phenomena. So I already explained that a little bit, but don't worry if you don't understand it. It'll get more clear later. So they both say things do exist out there, and they are truly existent. They exist from their own side. They're really there. So another point, third one, is do they do not accept omniscience nor obstructions to omniscience, which Venerable calls cognitive obscurations. So they do believe that the Buddha is all-knowing. They have the term all-knowing. But what that means is the Buddha is able to know everything, but only one thing at a time. <laughs> Whatever the Buddha turns his mind to, he can know it. But he can't know everything all at once. And that's the meaning of omniscience. So in the Mahayana schools, we, have, we, we say the Buddha is omniscient. And what that means is Buddha knows everything all the time. Like every single moment, every single instance, with every one of his minds, uh, every moment of his consciousness, he knows all phenomena, everything that exists. So the Hinayana tenet systems don't say that. And so since they don't, they don't accept omniscience, they also don't accept that there are obscurations to omniscience that have to be overcome. So that's one difference. And then another, another one, last one, is they do not use the term Buddha nature nor accept that all beings can become Buddha. So they would say some beings can become Buddha, obviously. Shakyamuni Buddha came, became a Buddha, and they, they do assert there are bodhisattvas who aspire to become Buddhas and practice very hard and become Buddhas. But they don't say that's doable by everybody. All beings can become Buddhas. Whereas in the Mahayana, most Mahayana schools, there's some Chittamatras who say there are some beings who will not become Buddhas. <laughs> we'll get to that later, but most Mahayana schools say that um, everybody can become enlightened. And then... Um, in the definition of Avabhashika, it also says they do not assert self-cognizers. So you may have heard of that before. Um, it's also called self-knowers. So some schools like Sotrantika and the Chittamatra say that uh, whenever we see an object or perceive an object with any of our senses, we, we have a visual consciousness that sees the object the blue thermos, and then there's another consciousness existing simultaneous with that, and that consciousness sees the eye consciousness that sees the thermos. And we need to have that other consciousness to be able to remember that we had that experience, to be able to say later, I saw the thermos. If we didn't have that other mind that's looking at the mind that sees the thermos, we wouldn't be able to remember that. That's the meaning of a self-cognizer. Now, some of the schools, like Prasangika and Vibhashika, <laughs> and I forget who else, uh, 
Anyway, some of the schools do not accept that. They refute it. They say, no such thing, and we don't need it. It's enough just to see the thermos, and then later we rem remember seeing it. They don't have to have that other mind that sees that mind. Because they say, if that was necessary, if it was necessary to have a second mind seeing the first mind, to be able to remember that we had that first mind, then you would need another mind to look at that second mind, and then you'd need another one looking at that one, and it would on and on infinitely. Infinite regress, or whatever they call it. And so, so they say, no, 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 there's no such thing as self-cognizing. So anyway, the Vabashikas do not accept self-cognizing. So we should probably stop here. Um, and, uh, yeah, continue next week. Okay, so we'll stop there and make a dedication of the merit, the positive energy. We started off with a good motivation, a positive altruistic motivation. So now we'll dedicate, share the merit with all living beings. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forever.